0: Kepasa Mufasa, Shalom, Aloha, salam, Alaikum, amdulila. What's up everybody, welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast I'm out here in Exeter, England right now at Breaking Convention Which is the largest psychedelic research convention in Europe And it is markedly different from the conferences and conventions that I've been to in the States There's a decidedly less corporatized atmosphere here and it's small. There's only a couple hundred people here, as opposed to the bigger is better ethos that seems to get applied to a lot of the conferences I've been to in the States. But the trade off here is that you get really intimate conversations with people. It's not like you're speed dating. I'm drawing all these inferences after a single breakfast. So the conference hasn't even really gotten started yet, but it's about to very shortly. But in the meantime, it's an honor to present my podcast with Daniel Schenken today. Y'all know him as the driving force behind TAM Integration. And they've got the TAM Integration Jam coming up next week. And I'm going to be a part of that as well. Very much looking forward to it. Going to appear in character. Going to be tag teaming some satirical psychedelic content with matt ruby who does alani dama i believe is one of his characters magnificent fellow and really all kinds of incredible people are coming together for the tam integration jam which also has a decidedly less corporate atmosphere bring on the weirdos more weirdos i'm gonna let dan take over the airwaves now thanks for listening please consider rating and reviewing the micropreneur podcast wherever you're listening have a great day i'm out Okay, pasa mufasa everybody welcome back to the micropreneur podcast daniel Schenken, often imitated never duplicated daniel Schenken of tam integration of course welcome back to the podcast how are things on the east coast today dan
1: um it, it's lovely thank you for having me it's just you know it's
0: crisp and crisp and snowy and beautiful as soon as i jumped on this morning i'm wearing a robe for those who are not watching this And Dan also went and grabbed a robe. So we're doing this in full wizard regalia. He's also got a number of other psychedelic-inspired attire on. Can you walk us through your wardrobe real quick? What are you wearing? Who are you wearing, Dan?
1: (laughs) Who am I wearing? I'm wearing tie-dye Zach, who is one of the finest tie-dyers in the world. He lives on Maui. Um, And then he, in collaboration with Jammin' On, right? Ben Jammin, he lives in Vegas, and he made these kimonos, and then GNL. This is GNL. I believe they're out of Northern California. And a good friend of mine, uh, who goes by the name of Toad, she used to volunteer at my yoga studio. And she is one of the artists whose work they put on the hat. But this is like upcycled material.
0: Are you are you actively practicing yoga right now? You look quite limber. Is that is that part of your daily practice, or what's your what's your yoga regimen like these days?
1: Uh, my physical practice isn't what it could be anymore. Uh, You know, I I get my meditation in. I get my breath work and and sort of a devotional practice. You know, I I use my beads and I I do my mantras. My physical practice could be better. Uh, My physical practice often looks like rocking a baby to sleep. Yeah. And I understand
0: you have baby number two on the way. Is that correct? Or maybe already here? Um,
1: As baby number one says, when you ask about baby number two, he will
0: say, he's out now. Congratulations. Congratulations on that. Nice. I, I just saw a Twitter thread, which I don't even have one child currently. I have a dog, which is quite a handful already. So I'm kind of like, you know, I'm getting slowly ramping up to it. But the Twitter thread was about Dude, the difference. Ready. I'm ready. Okay, good. Yeah. I mean, I get woken up and punched in the face by my dog at 530 every morning. So that's half the battle, I guess. There's no sleeping in anymore. But what, have you noticed, I'm sure you have, but what's the difference between going from one kid to to two kids. Is that like a quantum leap as they say, or do you feel like you're already just kind of like doing the same routine now?
1: Well, you know, the one thing there were sweet little rituals that I could do with baby one, you know, I had this, I had a playlist and I would just of things that I would sing to the baby at six o'clock in the morning as I walked him around. Um, you know, I would listen and then sing because he prefers live music. Um, but you can't really do that with baby number two quite so much because the th- now there's a three-year-old that needs stuff. Like, you know, it, it's the, the chaos has increased. And so, like, the quietude isn't isn't quite there. And, I mean, it's still fun. And I'm glad they get along. Um, you know, you can tell that, you know, they're brothers. And they, they like being brothers is, is what it seems like. And the three-year-old is, is very, very sweet. Although, you know, he is... He is slightly, you know, he's slightly feral, so, you know, sometimes he needs to be backed off a little bit, but but it's it seems to be all love.
0: I'm the youngest child. I have a brother who's three and a half years older, so relatively similar age gap. And it was hugely advantageous to have an older brother because he was the one that kind of got in trouble first. He was the one, you know, he was a senior in high school when I was a freshman. So going into my first day of freshman year, big scary high school, it was so helpful, even though we didn't hang out at high school, just to have a brother that I could call on. So big big fan of having an older brother myself and someone who actually, especially when cannabis came along, that was kind of my my guardrail was I didn't know what to think about it. I didn't know how to feel about it. And it wasn't until I heard my brother tell me about his cannabis experiences and be able to say, wow, this guy's still, you know, number one in his class at university. he was He's a brainiac and so on and so forth. It changed my conception of the way I thought about cannabis because up until that point, I had no idea he had used it. And I thought it was just my friends who were kind of the surfer, bum, dropout hippies, many of which are labels that I identify with now but it definitely helped to have an older brother. So, you know, one of the, the prime subject areas that seems to be evergreen for me to make satire around is this idea of the pseudo life coach or the pseudo integration coach. And, of course, there are many Wait, of these. Me. Well, that's what I wanted to go into next. Is that you, you, you make fun of me all day. I, I'm happy to do that, but unfortunately, I have great respect for what you do, so it makes it a little harder to satirize. Like the the inspiration for these characters that I'm getting are people that I've met in my travels, people that I've known years ago from my time in San Francisco, et cetera, et cetera, but. The first time I ever saw what you were doing, you actually came with quality control built in because our mutual friend Simon Eugler is a big fan of yours and Simon has been wonderful in helping me vet people in the space where, you know, if Simon puts his stamp of endorsement on something, I'm like, this person's pretty cool. And so unfortunately, I never really got the chance to, to satirize you, although I'm happy to explore the potential there. But from your perspective, someone who's been doing this for a number of years, Who's devoted to quality control? Who has a baseline of experience, et cetera, et cetera. What are your perspectives on this rise of the Instagram coach, of the overnight psychedelic integration coach? I'm sure you've noticed it.
1: Can I just talk about quality instead? Can I just talk about what creates qual- what creates co- quality? Uh, you know, I feel like I was lucky because when I was when I needed integration. Integration coach and like pseudo shaman and trip sitter wasn't really a job, you know. There were maybe like you know half a dozen guys out in Berkeley, but you know that I didn't know about. So if you had these experiences, if you had these sort of like enlightenment experiences, you didn't just run off to be an Instagram influencer because there wasn't even Instagram, wasn't even Facebook, uh, and. Somebody gave me a copy of Be Here Now, and I was like, oh, Ram Dass says do yoga. Like, if you want to cement these experiences in your nervous system, do yoga practice and do meditation. I was like, okay, I'll do yoga practice, I'll do meditation, and I'll become a yoga teacher and a meditation teacher. And I fell into a school where there was an awful lot of rigor, where you couldn't really, you know, you're holding space for sober people for two hours in a yoga class. Like, it had to be be good or nobody would come. And you were expected to study, you know, in the community that I was in. You know, we were we would sit at the feet of masters who would come in and we would do our practices and we would learn and we would take trainings after trainings after trainings and workshops and intensives and things like that. And so that's kind of how I grew up. And it wasn't until later that integration coach was even a job. And so I had the benefit of. Just training. Training. And so that's kind of, if you're listening and you are a, you know, one of the integration coaches that Dennis likes to make fun of, it's just like, just train until he he can't make fun of you anymore.
0: You know, I, i benefited a lot from cutting my teeth in the psychedelic world before social media as well. And I often will make that point. It's like, yeah there was my space was the only thing we had when i started out and the idea of publicly speaking about your experiences on public networks really wasn't a thing and i'm infinitely grateful for that because certainly i would have been one of these characters that i enjoy lampooning you know 10 years ago or so i would have happily rushed to the social media platforms and declared that, you know, I understand the universe and I can help guide you through it. And now, you know, I'm a little bit older and somewhat more mature. And I'm just so grateful that, you know, it wasn't a thing back when I was in college to pull out your phone and film someone, right? Or to pull out your phone and take video. And I'm often very grateful that a lot of the shenanigans and antics that went on Nobody had the presence of mind or the motivation to like film it and put it online. And that's something now as a high school teacher in the last few years, I worry for the youth because everybody makes mistakes. Everybody says dumb things. And the idea of like having that captured and circulated is a, a something that we didn't have to contend with. So, yeah, I suppose that satire is a good way to hopefully kind of exercise some of those characters if you will exercise in the sense of like exercising a demon like I I see satire as ritual is what it is is you create an effigy of the world or like an egregious fake representation and then you lampoon that and in doing so hopefully people can say oh I better not be that person and hopefully I can say I better not be that person so, you know, when when I first became aware of your work maybe two and a half or three years ago, it was because you were producing, I believe the first time I saw you producing a uh event was the TAM integration jam. It was the jam. And I had a couple of friends who were on one of the panels, music and psychedelics. And the first thing I thought was, wow, this is this is a badass poster. You had like a really nice graphic and You know it's very very engaging i don't imagine that you designed it maybe you did but i saw you put together this really high level event that counts for a lot you know you know uh, i just saw an interview with rick rubin i don't know if you saw that great producer and he mentioned that like he actually has no he's so good right He, he he mentions in the interview on 60 minutes that he has no technical skill but what people pay him for is he has really good taste he knows what is good. He knows what he likes. He knows what fits. And that's like his job as a producer. I try to do that with my show. But I saw you execute a very high-level event. I felt jilted, even though we didn't know each other, that I didn't get to participate. This year, I get to participate. And I'm very excited about that. So w- what got you started organizing these online events in the first place? And how has it evolved over the last couple of years? Because I think you've been doing it for about five years now, something like that. Well, this is this
1: one. We're doing one. in the last week of April, April twenty eighth to the 30th, and it's kind of uh, TAM integration's fifth anniversary party. Um, So we haven't been doing conferences, online conferences for that long, but we've been having integration circles that long, um, which is cool. Um, What got me started? Well, I mean, that was the other thing about in in the psychedelic world, you know, one of the things about these medicines is they kind of want to be shared. And they turn people, you know, if you look at, like, one of Michael Pollan's books, you know, I think it's The Botany of Desire. He talks about how we are being manipulated by the plants to do their bidding and to do their will. And for the most part, they want to be spread. And psychedelics are no different. Um, You know, even LSD is just a mold that tricked its way onto paper, you know. And so it wants to be spread. And so one of the things that it made me do, it made me, it made me do back in in the nineties was throw concerts and events. And so me and my buddies had found this venue that was copacetic and we would throw like all night acid test style dance parties. You know, we even got the merry pranksters to come to some, this was in Eugene, Oregon. And so it's sort of always, it's been in my DNA for a while to bring people together and to bring you know people and music together and and music and people and ideas together and so it just kind of looked like this now and I was really heartened again the technology caught up because we were we were live streaming our concerts sometimes in the 90s we would get like seven people you know we get seven people you know using dial-up um and So, you know, finding things like, you know, Webinar Jam, Webinar Ninja, finding these little apps that would just let you reach thousands of people around the world without having to rent a venue and get insurance and fly people in and do this and do that and make it accessible at a large scale is is really attractive to me because I don't always want to, you know, I'm not the gallivanter you are. You know, I'm, you know, maybe in another world, in another life, you know, I do like to travel, but not everybody can just go to like every conference and every festival and they still want to be a part of things. They still want to learn. They still want to meet people. And so that's part of the goal.
0: Yeah. That's something that I am offering some perspective on. And I often will lampoon myself because I like to point things out and offer perspectives, but at the same time, I'm pretty happy to shill for companies, and I've made that abundantly clear. So I don't like to put labels on myself, but it is something I've noticed on the conference circuit. There's a conference circuit. A lot of the same people are at every conference. You could pretty much, you know, shuffle the deck, and you're going to see the similar panels with similar speakers on them. And I, you know, there's there's a place. Yeah, that, that's true. That's true. So let's go ahead and, and pivot from that and say, yeah, the integration jam. How do you procure speakers? Like, what is your selection process like? Is it you personally selecting everyone? Or do you have people who are vetting who are saying, oh, check this person out? Like, if you know, if I want to recommend someone, because I'm now in a position where plenty of people are asking me, hey, can you get me hooked up with this panel or this conference or whatever? How do you vet people?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's mostly me. And I do want to say, you know, since you're shilling these companies, like I'll take some of their money too, you know, just, just putting it out there. I mean, but um, if they want to sponsor the jam or something like that. But yeah, I mean, these are for the most part people that I'm that I'm interested in, or people that I'm friendly with, or people that I'm inspired by. Uh, and then sometimes, yeah, Simon Ugler. We can trust Simon. Simon's like, Simon turned me on to you too. Okay, cool. He turned me on to Alyssa Gursky, who now teaches at my uh, integration coaching training. Um, so the, it's it's really simple. You know, it's not it's not a complicated process. The work it's complicated. Did I lose you somewhere? Are you still around? We managed to oh there you are. I lost you for a second. Um you edit things, right? <laughs> um Yeah I just I, I lost I lost your tab for a second. But yeah the, the only thing that happens is sometimes i go into scarcity mode and i worry that oh my god we're not going to have enough speakers and then i invite too many people and then we end up having you know a jam that is a really long day or we have to have two tracks running side by side or something like that because i just think everybody is too awesome to you know to not be included does that answer your question it, about it that? it does maybe, yeah you know i've
0: i've flirted with the idea of hosting similar events and as we've discussed especially the in-person conferences that's tough i hosted an in-person week-long incubator i called it and although i loved what it was the preparation the anxiety the cancelled reservations the venue deposits etc anyone who's organized a conference especially for the first time can empathize with this i don't wish that upon myself again
1: the last in-person conference I did. I worked on a, a project called Crypto Psychedelic. It was in Tulum. You know, it had 200 people. Uh, we threw it together in, in two months. And, you know, these wonderful folks had come up in crypto. And they were like, you know what? We think this information... And they were inspired, you know? The psychedelics told them to spread the message. And that's what they wanted to do. And they were okay spending money. You know, they were okay spending money on the thing. And I think that's kind of what it's, what it takes in a lot of ways, you know. Our events in, you know, back in the day in Oregon, you know, there were just there were a lot of like generous pot dealers, and growers that just were like, oh, you, I'll, bet, you know, everybody was like, okay, I'll pay for that band, okay, I'll pay for that band, and so maybe that's what it takes, and maybe that's happening at a at a higher level. I do think about doing grassroots events in person from time to time.
0: We'll see how it goes. Sure. So one of the one of the byproducts that doing an in-person event with a major bankroll opens up to the world is that you have a lot of people pivoting from other spaces into the psychedelic space. This is something I've seen a lot. Someone who became successful with crypto or a totally different industry. And I've heard psychedelics described as an emerging market and to the extent that These large banks, investment analysts, et cetera, now look at psychedelics as an emerging market right next to crypto and right next to online sports betting and things like that. And to the people at the top, maybe there's no differentiation between what psychedelics are and what sports betting are because it's a vertical. It's an emerging market. And I've noticed at a number of these events that there will be panelists on stage And I don't know all the people, but I've definitely asked a few of these kind of thought leaders or people positioning themselves in the space about their experience. And not a lot of them, certainly not all of them, have ever actually taken psychedelics or have anything more than maybe a baseline of experience with a ketamine session at a clinic or with microdosing. And I'm just curious, like my perspective, I want to say a lot of things about this. I try to make, keep it very nonspecific and keep it kind of general satire. But like this idea of thought leaders in the psychedelic space who have pivoted in from another space who maybe have never had a proper classical psychedelic experience to me is really easy fodder, low hanging fruit for satire, but also a little bit alarming as a trend. Do you have any perspective on this uh, you know, idea of an emerging industry, not full of, but you know, with a substantial amount of people who are, could be described as opportunists rather than as psychonauts kind of ha- trying to guide the space?
1: Well, 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 thought leader according to who?
0: According to them, according you know, to the, the PR, unfortunately.
1: Well, I mean, people have as much, you know, power as they're, they're given that attention. So I don't know. It's it's astounding to me that people are paying attention to them. And if you're not careful about who you're paying attention to, I, I guess you kind of get what you deserve. You know, I, I don't believe that. I, I'm not a big fan of like victim mentality. You know, I, I spend a lot of time trying to decide who I want to listen to. You know, I can tell, I can tell pretty quick if I want to listen to somebody or not and who I think is a thought leader in any kind of space. And I'm not sure for how long they're going to be able to keep that up. And I'm not even, I'm sure if they want to, they probably want to get in and make some sort of money and take an exit. And, and maybe that's fine. And I think it's just a call to be more rootsy. You know, for those of us who want the goods from the fam, I'm just interested in the goods from the fam. And I, I don't, I look at like a wonderland thing and I don't, I don't need to be there. I mean, I guess I would go if somebody paid me to go and make it really comfortable, but nobody's doing that for little old me and I'm, and I'm okay. I'd rather, I'd rather play with my kid and, so I, I guess there's just a lot of, like, scarcity mindset and also just a willingness to, like, outsource our authority and wisdom. Like, like, like and, that, and that's on everybody, you know, to listen to things that are not their internal wisdom and not their body. You know, it's like, why would you, is the person who, you know, if, if you're listening to this podcast, like, are we more interesting than your own heart? And if we're not, you should turn us off.
0: Yeah, I second that. I often uh, implore people to tune me out. I think that's my first sort of like package label warning that comes with the product. It's like, oh, please don't take anything too seriously that I'm saying these are top of mind perspectives and insights accrued from experiences. And that's really all it is. It's not anything more than that. So shifting gears, which I very much agree with you as far as like where we Place our attention, and like one tangible example of how I'm investing my attention is, I really have to put limits on my social media use. I use it for my business, as we both do. I enjoy a lot of things about social media. I've studied it. I feel very unwell when I'm just scrolling, or as I call it, doom scrolling. So I'm investing a lot more attention in reading and finding books. You know, using using my phone and my Libby and Kindle app, et cetera, and that brings me a lot more fulfillment. So as far as shifting attention towards the thought leaders that you want to see. Who are some of the people in the space that you are inspired by? Let's say some of our predecessors, people who inspired you in your formative and you know formative years, and then some people now who are doing great work that you think we should be paying attention to.
1: A lot more artists and musicians. You know, there's there's a lot of scientists and researchers who are doing great things, and that's cool. Um, I think that you know, in a lot of ways psychedelics are pointing us to the truth that's available in beauty. And so finding, you know, artists and musicians and poets, um, you know, I was watching a little bit of an interview with Ian from the Mythic Masculine, Ian, Mc, Ian McCall, I forget his last name. And he was in conversation with Sophie Strand, who will be in at the, at the jam. And they're talking about, yeah, talking about like, you know, the mythic masculine, and they were just having a discussion about what was it like, what is it like to grow up as, as a man? And that's, and what were the archetypes that shaped your kind of evolution and growth and initiation? And it was really thought provoking. And it put me, you know, it kind of took me to little vignettes of my own life. You know, it was their conversation was a sound became a sounding board for my own inner reflection and learning. Right. And so it was their authority in some way. Right. And their wisdom. But it was a wisdom that turned me on to my own inner journey and made that more alive. Um, Interestingly enough, today, I don't know when we're releasing this, but today's International Women's Day. And so I figured I would make a post Uh, As we do for social media, and the woman that I chose to highlight is Edie Brickell. Do you remember Edie Brickell? You're unfamiliar, Gen Gen X music icon. You know, heyday of like back when back when MTV played music videos, and uh, Edie Brickell very psychedelic sang uh, her songs were about altered states of consciousness there were songs about addiction and stigma and you know life in the scene and i remember reading an interview with her in rolling stone magazine the paper copy and she was talking about what it was like to do mdma with her friends before it was scheduled before it was illegal and i was 15 maybe maybe i had done mdma once or something And it blew my mind that there was a time when, when it wasn't illegal and how cool that would have been to be able to explore these medicines and have, you know, these transformational experiences with your friends without the threat of being tortured and imprisoned. And that was, and I think about that all the time that, that the drug war, I'm just going to shift to the drug war, um, is a totally, is totally a man-made invention. You know, that it's, it's a dogma that we just accept as true. It's like, oh, these things are illegal and probably bad and only should only be available under these very controlled auspices. And, you know, now they get to, you know, maybe if you're lucky, we'll let you pay $10,000 to get it from your doctor. Um, that there was a time before that that seemed kind of free and easy and is reflected in her music. And so, you know, I'm inspired by the musicians and the artists, you know, Rick Rubin is what I listen to on my headphones while I'm rocking the baby to sleep. You know, if I'm not singing, if I'm not, if I'm not playing, you know, Bob Marley, I'm listening to Rick Rubin. Um, and then all of the people doing decriminalization work is very inspiring because I know it's hard and I know there's a lot of infighting in the decrim movements and there's a lot of agendas at play there. And I don't really have a good mind for politics and I don't always know who's right or wrong. Uh, I'm glad that it's happening and I'm glad that those people seem to be tireless and they're not stopping. And so I'm really hoping that that it just continues until we end up in a place where um, people have more freedom. You know, didn't give you a the lot drug of war necessarily.
0: Yeah, that's great. You no, know, you gave me one name to start with, Edie Raquel. Who I'll, I'll check out that post once you make it. Raquel would it be and, and fun- the New Bohemians? Okay, Edie Raquel Edie... and the New Bohemians. Okay, that's. Good. I, I always am assembling new playlists, and I actually need a new playlist for a flight I'm, I'm about to jump on tomorrow. So I think Edie Brackell and the new Bohemians is going on that playlist. And I wanted to do interject you know a- Do you
1: Circles Around the Sun? Do I don't. Do you are
0: I don't know Circles Around the Sun. I was born in 1989. So by the time I started watching MTV, they were done with music videos. I do like Mojo Nixon though. He was a part of those early days.
1: I saw him live. I crashed his green room and he had to kick me out of his
0: green room. Yeah, man, we could we could definitely talk for the rest of the episode about music and psychedelics because that's something I hope to see more of. And that's actually my focus going to South by Southwest for the first time this year is that there's a music and psychedelics track. And that's that panel and the comedy and psychedelics. That's immediately what attracted my attention and what I'm gravitating towards rather than another panel about data sets and policy. It's like, I want to go talk to the heads. And for for talking about like recreational psychedelics use, it's another contentious issue. There's a lot of platforms and outlets who explicitly endorse only legal medicalized psychedelic use because that's what's on track to make money. But I always say, have you ever been to a Flaming Lips concert under the influence of psychedelics? It's a cathartic, ecstatic, religious experience. And uh, I've been to two, and the last one was during a particularly challenging time it felt like in my life. And I just cried. I was screaming. Wayne Coyne was there before a song introducing it. The lead singer saying if you're here and you're feeling good right now, I want you to scream and make as much noise and just cry with jubilant ecstasy because there might be someone nearby you who's a, who's going through a really hard time and maybe they're used to hiding that and they can't show it. And by them seeing you so happy, so ecstatic. It's going to rub off on them. It's going to help them. And that's how I felt. It's like just being in a crowd of people who just put aside all of the politics, all of the challenges, and were just really, really happy in that moment. That, if that's not a good use of psychedelics and that sort of worldview, I don't know what is. So yes, uh, who are some of your favorite artists to see under the influence? I just mentioned Flaming Lips. Can't endorse them enough. Make sure you know what you're doing. I don't recommend uh, your first time taking five grams and going to a show. But yeah,
1: no, five grams is is not a, an appropriate dose for a show. I think for most people, um, I I did I saw the Flaming Lips New Year's Eve at the Warfield, uh, and it was it was fabulous. You know, with all of the costumes and all of the things, and it was just it was a cannabis night. It wasn't it wasn't highly psychedelic. I mean, it was highly psychedelic, but that that was that was what I was under the influence of. Um, Sigur Rose, are you familiar with Sigur Rose? They, they are an Icelandic, they're, you know, an Icelandic band that sings sometimes in a made up language and there it is orchestral and pastoral and atmospheric and it swells and the rhythms of it are slow and geologic and it's just gorgeous. And, you know, I, I, and and pairs really nicely with mushrooms. as well, and it's just that—that's a show where I could cry from start to finish. I could just really and have—I've got to see them twice: once as Cigarose and once, once I saw Jonesy do "Rice Boy Sleeps" the entire album. Um, there's a band. I saw that
0: performance in L.A. I saw—I saw Jonesy uh, doing "Rice Boy Sleeps." Incredible. So this is one of the nice things also about
1: psychedelics is that like. We don't want to take the weirdness out of it, right? I mean, we're just we're sitting here doing your your fancy podcast in silly robes and hats. You know Like we don't want to take the weirdness out of psychedelics. I walked into the the venue for Rice Boy Sleeps, and there were pop rocks on the seats. And they said this opening piece is group participation. This is an orchestral piece. They had an orchestra there. He goes, at partway through the performance, we're going to turn around and the conductor is going to point to you and that is your cue to put the pop rocks in your mouth. And the whole venue did it at once and there was this soft, quiet crackling and it was splendid. It was just remarkable and it was silly and it was moving and it was weird. And the freedom to do things like that and to explore is part of the reason that we are you know as as the kids say you know expanding our minds we're expanding our minds um and doing new things hopefully with our bodies expressing ourselves to find new possibilities and to explore um what's real and what is beautiful and what is true and what is love so sigarose i think does that in a in a most amazing way on a flip side um, on a flip side, and of course, I'm, I'm leaving out, you know, the standard, you know, Grateful Dead family stuff, you know, just assuming that a Grateful Dead family bands, you know, cover bands, that all works. There's a a, a a doom metal band that I really like called Ohm. Their website is Ohm Vibratory. And they And Ed, I forget what the guy's name is, but he looks kind of like a gnome wizard you know and he's got just these heavy Rickenbacker basses and if you look you know at his his guitar caddy there's like seven or eight of these Rickenbacker basses they're all slightly different and just the bass is so heavy that you feel it and it is slow and moving and shadowy and just a, a really powerful way to explore your own inner depths um, you probably want something light afterwards. like it it
0: requires a, ch- a bit of a chaser depending on your headspace, but it's
1: powerful stuff.
0: Ohm is great. I believe they're yes. a duo, right? It's like drum and bass. And you know, something you said I just want to dive into a little bit about this sense of playfulness of weirdness. That's the last thing that should ever be decontextualized from psychedelics that that I think a big part of in my experience is, this cathartic therapeutic experiences is reconnecting with a childlike sense of wonder. And in order to do that, sometimes you have to, you know, not take yourself so seriously. And a great example of that with music and which is hard and, to which do which when, to like do a when there's like million dollar, dollar valuations on the, on the line. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I understand from the perspective of some of the people involved with some of these Corporadelic companies, as you say, they're some of them are psychonauts and they're not really legally allowed to say certain things. And that's just the world we live in. And so it's, a, you know, make of that what you will. But uh, there's a group called Kronos Quartet who's hugely influential. They've been around 40 years. And my wife's cousin is the founding viola player. So I've been very fortunate to get to see them a whole bunch. And one of the things that they've done when I've seen them is this was in San Francisco. They literally pulled out these like plastic wand things that like you would buy for your kids. And this is one of the most serious, influential quartets in the world, especially in the avant-garde realms, who are playing with these like toys, essentially. And they have a whole composition around it. And for me, that sense of like having the tension of them playing the serious stuff, you know, the Requiem for a Dream soundtrack or whatever they're doing. And then pivoting into using these like cheap plastic wands on stage just completely gives you a sense of, oh, this is fun. This is, you know, this is what music should be. It doesn't have to be look how virtuosic I am all the time. And so that's just something I wanted to offer as far as like that sense of playfulness. I think that you can pull it off. And I think that you can translate that into your business too. I think that there should be people who are taken seriously, who also have that light, playful element to them. And it actually accentuates some of the more serious stuff. And yeah, the chaser that you mentioned is also a comment. I feel sometimes with psychedelics, I want a very heavy experience sometimes. And there's a certain, you know, artists I might listen to. And then once that's through, maybe I want to tone it back a little bit. Listen to some Weird Al Yankovic, you know? Uh, A lot of people sleeping on Weird Al still, right? Um,
1: Yeah. Um, Kronos Fest, I I agree. Uh, It was, again, it was really mind-opening for me when somebody, you know, I, I grew up with my parents' 60s records. And then somebody played for me Kronos Quartet's version of Purple Haze. And it was, I was amazed to hear, you know, s- string musicians at 13 years old, string musicians play, you know, psychedelic rock and roll. It was mind-blowing. And so our what we're talking about also with our humor is we're really talking about our humanity, right, is is in this push towards kind of everything looking like an Apple store, right? And we're learning to speak in such a... We're learning to communicate with machines in a new way, with things like AI and learning to speak to Siri and, hey, Google, play such and such. That what is happening is, is that we're a, being asked to speak in machine language and to think in machine language. And we're being removed from some of the things that make us human and you know fitting into a world that wants to kind of maximize profit and you know for max maximum scalability and repeatability and fitting into for some reason I'm getting a, a vision of like a store at the airport you know what would it be like to be to take psychedelics in a, in a little kiosk at the airport And how would that be so like denatured and talk about stigma and and law enforcement, having to go through the TSA, having to, you know, be inspected in that way so that you can then have this denatured experience that is totally devoid of place and nature and is just stuck in every major airport in the country. And I think that there needs to be other options because there's people who might be listening to that and be like, that's a good idea. I can make money on that. You know, as opposed to playing drums in the woods with your friends, which is actually more therapeutic to be with a doctor in an airport or to be by the fire with your friends. Yeah, psychedelic
0: use out in nature. One of my favorite places to do it would be at a hot spring. And again, I always feel like I have to qualify some of these things, that these are my experiences, and that uh, you don't, as I'm sure Dan will agree, like you don't just dive in headfirst in an unfamiliar environment, you know? And most of the people who listen to the show, I'd like to think are quite experienced and have this you know so i don't have to always qualify but i just feel the the need at this point to say like yes if you're going to explore psychedelics and you want to do it in a non-medicalized context like just dip your toes in first. Like you don't need to do five grams on your first dose. Like see how you react to a gram or a gram and a half. And I'm like, for me, that's the concert dose, like two grams, a gram, 1.7. That's a great concert dose. As long as you know, you can maintain functionality to a degree, because also I'm sure we've both been there when you're learning about how you react to these substances and, you know, maybe don't mix substances your first time. It can get overwhelming if you're in a public environment. If you're at your home, you have your people there or your person, you know, you're, you, you, eliminate a lot of the external stimuli you're going to learn how you react to that and i always i think that the part of the issue we're experiencing with psychedelic culture coming mainstream especially in the united states is the united states ethos is like the evil Knievel ethos we explained it's like bigger more faster steroid culture scale the units and i think social media exacerbates that because you have people and i'm noticing this and i like to satirize it a lot there are people who literally will take a microdose and then a week later, they've got a brand, they've got a company they're putting on. And, you know, it's it's not that much of an exaggeration at this point because social media, to me, having studied this and having a degree, degree in media, et cetera, it, it exploits these vulnerabilities in the human psych. And it tells us, like, you need to constantly compare yourself to other people. Well, there might be a fundamental dynamic differential there where maybe the person you're comparing yourself to is someone like Dan who's been having these experiences for many years and has learned over those many years, how it suits them personally. Right? So I just think that's a thought I wanted to offer. And it's something that I've been focusing on with more of my writing is exploring this phenomenon of how social media and the mainstreaming of psychedelics are getting co-opted by this worldview that really has nothing to do with psychedelics and how they're strange bedfellows right now. I don't know. Do you have any perspective on this? Like, you know, rush, to be relevant, the rush to sort of, you know, I guess, looping back to being a thought leader, Um, any perspective?
1: So what you are saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that it's bigger than any one person, that it's, it's a movement that is fueled by the algorithms. It's our, our culture, you know, our way it's the way our culture is trying to find significance and self-esteem today that our self-esteem has been outsourced and so people are doing what they feel like they need to do to fit in and be relevant and to be lovable so i think that like that's where i want to pivot on this is that so many people that i work with as an integration coach are struggling with worthiness and of love are they worthy enough to be um, seen and heard and care for to have their needs met in a world that is in continu- increasingly disconnected and not particularly interested in the well-being of its inhabitants, right? Culture does, is, it seems extraordinarily extractive and that is brushing up against a human's need to belong and to be cared for. And so this is why things like integration circles are important, and why a real festival is important, and time time with your friends in the woods is important. Because what we want need to do is foster real connection. And if we're just at a um, if we're just constantly in business meetings, it's a different kind of communication where the void is trying to be filled by something else. I think. And so, you know, the the practice, you know, we were talking about the rigors of practice at the beginning. And the practice is to kind of remove the barriers of what, remove the barriers to love. What's keeping the love from getting in? What's keeping the love from getting out? And like, there's a reason why the hippies of the 60s, a reason why there was a summer of love. There's a reason why people were waking up and being like, wait, this is of primary value. And that hasn't changed. It's not like love goes out of style. Um, It's just, you know, conventional attitudes around it do. And so that is what everybody, every time you look at an influencer, everybody, every time you're looking at me on on Instagram, and I'm telling, and I'm trying to be the smart guy. I'm just, I'm saying, love me, you know, I'll be, you know, flat out. That's what every, and I'm not unique. That's what everybody on Instagram is saying. just saying, love me. That's why it's a heart, right? Click the heart, love me. And, And so I just encourage us to like figure out a way where we can love each other more and perhaps like give more than, than we take. And in the end, the love you make is equal to the love you take. Our great psychedelic forefathers, the Beatles told us. Paul McCartney
0: is one of the best concerts I've ever seen, and he must be 80 years old now. Like, when I saw him, he absolutely lit up Petco Park, which is the San Diego baseball stadium. And that was a really special concert for me because I took my father-in-law, who's a Beatle maniac, and he had never seen Paul McCartney or any of the Beatles, to my surprise. And the tickets were not cheap, but that was an act of love where even... Sometimes they've had a difficult relationship with him, but I knew that that was... That was something we could bond around. And it was a truly memorable experience. And, you know, I've been re-exploring, revisiting the work of Anthony Bourdain, who's a great inspiration to me. And I'm currently reading his book, A Cook's Tour, which is his his literary adventure, uh traveling for the first time and making the first season of Parts Unknown back in the early 2000s or whenever it was. And yet so much of what he's saying in that is about how these these. Cultures that exist beyond, you know, and on the fringes, largely, they still re- retain a lot of this sense of community, a lot of these, you know, the the sense of a meal, not just being you go to a McDonald's or an Arby's and you sit down and eat. you eat your meal. What makes the meal special is that you're with your friends. There's cultural elements to it. There's a set and setting. And I, I don't want to lose that for myself personally. And I see society heading in a direction where People value this efficiency. Like there's this, there's this ethos that like you need to have meal prep and have, you know, your meals delivered for maximum efficiency. It's like, no, I want to sit at a bamboo table with the homies on the ground, shoveling food, you know, into my mouth with a hand and and drinking rice wine. Like to me, that's many, you know, one of the points Bourdain makes in his book is like if you think of the best meal you've ever had, it's rarely at like a stuffy, sit-down, fancy restaurant. It's usually like, oh. It was my cousin's barbecue, you know, this happened or that happened. And I just with psychedelics, I guess the analogy I'm trying to make is I don't want us to lose that and, and to create this homogenized TSA psychedelic experience, I want us to really get transported back. When I think about the first time I ever had a mushroom experience, I'm immediately transported back to who was there. Ozo Motley was playing, and this was a low dose again, but like Ozo Motley, extraordinary band, sun setting. Uh, just, you know, this incredible human experience where I was just happy. I actually started peeking for my first psychedelic experience ever inside of a house of mirrors. Talk about an insane place to have your first peak experience. It was just like I went in feeling the come up and feeling fuzzy. And I think I was in there for 20 minutes, could not find where to go. Just staring at all these different versions of myself. And that's kind of the satire I like to make. It's like, here's a tall, skinny, funny version of me. Here's a little short squat version of me. Here's me. You know, it's it's like, it's kind of all the same person. There's just a lot of smoke and mirrors involved. And then I ended up coming out the entrance. And I always thought that was an appropriate metaphor for the psychedelic experience. It's like, I went in this place, saw a million different perspectives of myself, and then despite how hard i was trying i couldn't find the exit i ended up you know exiting through the entrance and that was just like a perfect little encapsulated memory so i think we're getting to a really sweet spot right now but i want to leave you the last few minutes of the podcast to openly unabashedly endorse your adventures that you're on some of your upcoming offerings offerings i know that you have your integration circles every wednesday i believe which has been ongoing for probably five years now You've got, of course, the one-on-one coaching, and you've got the integration jam coming up, which I'm very much looking forward to being a part of. So what else is going on?
1: Well, I do a year-long integration coaching training program, which is going really well. Uh, We're through, you know, I used to teach yoga teacher trainings. And it was not, and and between you and me, a lot of the material is the same a lot of the philosophy and a lot of the methodology and how to interact with people is the same, you know, there's fewer poses, Uh, but, you know, teaching people how to have deep, powerful, transformative conversations with people uh, preparing them for and integrating their psychedelic experiences is a really rich and rewarding stuff to do. Um, So that happens. And yeah, I coach and we've got group coaching, you know, which is a good option for some people. But, you know, I'm definitely excited to have you at the jam. I believe we're going to have, what do you call your character? Call your character? Don Chad. Don Chad. We, could, we can have Don
0: Chad. We can have Amethyst Jaguar. There could be, uh, you know, sometimes I'll do a wardrobe change, so it might happen.
1: What we're putting you up against is going to be a knockdown dragout fight with, with, with Lonnie Dama, right? Matt Ruby, the other, you, we were complaining, me and you were talking one day about, um, how so many people weren't actually funny, you know that that you wanted to have a satire fest and it was hard because nobody could. That funny people, people who are funny on command, are few and far between, and Matt Ruby's one of them. So I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, your character interact with his character. I think it's going to be fascinating, and yeah, th- things of that nature. Uh, we've also got Farm Boy Slim. Yeah, Farm Boy going to be a part of it. And, you know, a lot of, yeah, you know, somatic stuff, b- business stuff for young coaches, um, ceremonial stuff. You know Shane Norte, maybe. Yeah. You've, been, you've made it over there. It's on my bucket list. Um, so that's going to be a good time. And then other than that, you know, I'm up here in the, in New England, just kind of being a family guy, you know, trying to raise a kid, you know, you you know, playing, playing with slinkies. Um, it's, it's, it's really a simple life in a lot of ways. I just appreciate
0: the uh, chance to drop in with you. Anytime. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to the TAM integration jam and Anybody listening who wants to join us, I'll absolutely be there. I think Dan is underplaying his hand right now. There is typically a lot of very, very engaging, dynamic, interesting people that are a part of this. And for my money, that's what makes a great event. Like, for example, when I go out to these corporate delic events, I'm not there to listen to the panels. I'm there to meet people, to listen to people. So if you put a bunch of really interesting folks in one space and kind of rally around that cause... It's going to be a pretty dope experience, and Dan is great at curating that. So thanks for all your work, man. You're welcome back anytime, and looking forward. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode, and please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, micopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Mycopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micopreneur Podcast.